This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Everything extraordinary can be explained away. And yet, it is true. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, James Hamrick, and as always, I am joined here with my co-host, Gabe Green. What's going on, man? You remembered to introduce me this time. I did. You know, it's it's weird reading from show notes because you write them, and, and you have it. <laughs> I am Gabe Green introducing James Hamrick, and so every time I I almost uh, introduce myself as you, but, but I got it. <laughs> but today we are about to uh, wrap up the unbreakable split glass trilogy with obviously the last film glass um probably the the first highly anticipated film from m night Shyamalan since i don't know maybe maybe the last year but no, I, I don't know do you remember what people were thinking going into the last airbender uh not really um i i was not really as in tune with i guess the conversation at the time um and I had never really seen the anime, so I wasn't even like really try- intentionally keeping up with with what the thoughts were there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so pretty much like his his first highly anticipated film in in a good long while. Uh, <laughs> apparently, some people would say just you know just as disappointing as the previous ones, and we'll get into that. But before we talk about that, I want to ask you guys if you enjoy the uh, this show to please head over to iTunes and uh, leave us a rating and review, and also subscribe. That would be uh, very helpful. Uh, and if you want to follow us on Facebook, we're there. It, uh, and also, uh, give us a like on Facebook. We're there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. We don't have any feedback this week, uh, so we're just going to head right into the behind-the-scenes discussion. Um, so in February of 2017, just a few weeks after the release of Split, Shyamalan announced that his next film would be a sequel combining Unbreakable and Split. The script was uh, finished by April, and the title was announced to be Glass. Um, and I remember just the... the crazy excitement for this film just the stunt he pulled by making split a surprise sequel was just brilliant just from a marketing perspective not even talking about how how it you know it recontextualized the film just from a marketing perspective for a director who was so as maligned as he was to be able to generate just so much buzz out of nowhere is pretty crazy yeah i remember you know it came out and pretty much not everybody, but most people really, really liked it. Like we talked about uh, on our episode, it was uh, generally well received. And so, the the new question was, well, you know, what's next? Like we know his next film has to be another one of this. And so, uh, yeah, like you said, it was it was cool and weird to be in a place where everybody's super hyped for for the next Shyamalan movie. So when it came time to to cast the film, uh, it was made up almost entirely of returning cast members from both previous films. From Unbreakable, you had Bruce Willis as David Dunn, now called The Overseer. Uh, Samuel Jackson as Elijah Price, uh, a.k.a. Mr. Glass. Spencer Treat Clark actually returning as David's son, Joseph. Uh, and Charlene Woodard as Elijah's mother, Mrs. Price. Um, and then from Split, you had James McAvoy, obviously, as Kevin Wendell Crumb slash The Horde and all of the number of people he plays, um, and Anya Taylor-Joy as Casey Cook. Uh, really, the the significant addition to Glass uh, was Sarah Paulson as Dr. Ellie Staple, um, the psychiatrist who's trying to convince them that their powers aren't real. 
uh, Boston Christopher, who played the comic book clerk in the first film, reprises his role here, uh, along with M. Night reprising uh, his role from both Split and Unbreakable, which is now confirmed to all three appearances be the same person. So that's pretty cool. So principal photography happened in early October of 2017 in Philadelphia. Uh, the Allentown State Hospital served as the mental hospital where the majority of the film was set. Mike Galakis uh, returned from Split as director of photography. And as with the visit and Split, uh, Shyamalan financed the film's $20 million budget himself, uh, taking out loans on his family's property. The film's uh, post-production and uh, release, Wes Dylan Thornton uh, also came back over from Split to score the film. Uh, he reused some of James Newton Howard's themes from Unbreakable, as well as bringing back some of his own from Split. Uh, deleted scenes from Unbreakable, such as the conversation between Kevin and Joseph in the bedroom, uh, and the fair sequence where Elijah sneaks onto the ride were used as flashbacks in this film, uh, which is really cool because, uh, especially with the, the one with Joseph and David, they, they feel very organic here. Yeah. Um, and they don't. We don't have to have like CGI young uh, Bruce Willis or anything. Which I thought when I saw that the first time, I was like, "Oh, that's pretty good DHG technology." Yeah, at first, I was I was really confused. I was like, "It," I mean, because they they kind of changed the the color grading to to match the film more. I'm like, "Well, this doesn't look like Unbreakable, is it?" Like, but but then you know you see the young Spencer Treat Clark, and I'm like, "Okay, wait a second, is this like a deleted scene?" And and yeah, that's how they did it. Yeah, and that the scene at the fair. I guess it's mostly in the color grading, but I would have never guessed that was from Unbreakable. <laughs> the colors are so bright, and they're they're much more in keeping with the color palette and almost even the visual style of uh, Glass. They they don't even they don't feel like oh those are just cutscenes from Unbreakable. It's weird. Yeah, that that was the one to me. I thought for sure was was filmed uh, for this. You know, I I didn't bother looking you know, to see if. If uh, it was the same actor who rep- reprising the role, but uh, when I found out it was or not reprising the role, uh, whenever I found out that it was just a, a scene there, I was really really surprised because uh, like you said, it feels very very modern. Uh, the camera, the color, and I know that you can like, you know, tweak things and edit them and stuff, but yeah, it doesn't feel like a, a twenty year old scene. So the film was released on January 19th of 2019 this year. is actually the first film I saw in the theater this year. So, uh, James, I remember you were kind of disappointed the first time you saw it. And, and we actually haven't even talked at all since your second viewing. So uh, have you warmed up to this film at all? Or are you still kind of mixed on it? Oh, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit more the second time. Um, and with the, with the first viewing... I think that I, I kind of, I tried to make like an effort to say, like, I've always enjoyed his good movies more on repeat viewings. Like, I've, and I, I recognized a lot of the film's strengths. It's just a lot of the flaws really bogged me down to the point where I just, I decided like to split it right down the middle and, and ah, there you go. Uh, and give it a two and a half stars with the uh, acknowledgement that you know it it'll likely improve um and it did and i i enjoyed it a good bit more watching here some of the same flaws still stuck out others were like well i I mean i'm not a big fan of this but i'm also not really ready to call it even a flaw i think a lot of the time 
first viewing, especially if it's in the theater for a big thing that I'm looking forward to, if 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 things like humor don't land perfectly, it really like it's off-putting to me. And you know, Shyamalan really goes for like some humorous little like isolated moments here and there, and uh, I didn't enjoy a good bit of them. And so there and they they happened semi frequently. And so there was just there were these moments that were kind of taking me out and reminding me of like yeah, sometimes the dialogue can be a bit iffy and. And there were certain elements that didn't work very well for me. And yeah, I, I just had a lot of different thoughts going on. Um, but having thought about the movie more since, and definitely like having seen it now uh, a second time, uh, I think my thoughts are a bit more more refined on it. And uh, and yeah, I like it a good bit more. Yeah, so I, I saw it twice in theaters. Um, and I really enjoyed it both times. I had... There's there's some serious issues with the film. We'll definitely talk about those. Um, but for me, coming out of it, it was like this. This, in hindsight, as with a lot of his films, I pretty I was pretty much of the opinion that this was the most natural and faithful conclusion to what the two previous films had been. Like, even though sure, like it's kind, they were kind of as if they were building it up to kind of a, a culmination where the. You know, all these different characters from different films are coming together. You know, this is M. Night Shyamalan's Avengers. I think the fact that he took that and spun it in a very different direction, that was like the most natural thing. And then the ultimate thematic statement this film is making is far more in keeping with the movies that were split and unbreakable than, you know, a gigantic punch fest in a tower. Um, So for me, coming out of this movie, it was like, well, yeah, that, that that's what was, was always going to happen. I think I kind of want to start at the end with this review. You know, I, 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 we haven't really talked all that deeply, me and you. So I, I want to get your take. Like, what do you think is like the final statement of this film? Because with with Unbreakable, you have a film that is about identity. You know, finding your belonging, and you know, if you can figure out who you are, that will give you your purpose in life. And you know, the misery of and the, the misery and heartbreak of not understanding your purpose. Then Split, you have it's about. You know those who have suffered, people who have been abused, and and that that abuse giving them a strength that no one else could have. Whether that's you know for in Casey's you know Casey's case, she's able to um you know rise up and fight back and you know turn on her abuser and 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 or and then or in the Beast case, the abuse is what led to the birth of all his identities and ultimately his superhuman abilities. Like it's about you know. The, the way the way that suffering shapes people whether for good or ill and so coming into this film where everyone just dies in the end <laughs> this is a secret society has been putting it down what, what do you think is the um the, the ultimate statement of this film does this film wrap up in a way that is as thematically you know cohesive as the previous two that's a big question <laughs> now, i think to me it feels like a continuation and then marriage of both of the previous film's themes where like in addition to what you said I think Split also says a lot just about um the power of of belief itself like I mean it's it's a plot point to explain the horde but I think it was also kind of planting the seeds for um for where he was going to take things here in glass where you know they're trying to be convinced that they're not real they just think they are um you know these these powers only exist in their head 
and then you you had all of that uh the stuff about identity and unbreakable and that's still here you know even even at the end of glass we still have him you know saying i i wasn't a mistake um and so this it felt like it was about allowing people to like believe in their own identity or like create their own identity without any sort of external inhibition i guess Mm -hmm. so yeah that's it to me it really like there are things that it's saying in isolation but i think largely it's just kind of this this bringing together of of what's been said previously yeah there's there's yeah there's a lot about identity there's a lot about suffering there's a lot about belief and i think this, this one brings in it, it it whereas the first two films were very focused, you know, the first one was just undone, the second one was just pretty much on that basement with those characters. This one, it tries to bring in the rest of the world and given you give an explanation for why haven't we seen you know um you know, Sam Jackson's character, uh, Elijah Price, has been saying that this is ancient mythology, you know, our our myths, our comic books, all of that is is a shared memory. So you kind of beg the question. Where is everybody then? And this film kind of comes in and gives an answer to that, while also I, I think as you said, you're kind of giving permission to the rest of the world to you know, by, by broadcasting this message, by broadcasting the reality that there are heroes and gods among us, that it gives all the people who either you know suspected or never even thought about their own powers. By by simple virtue of someone else showing them, they can now, as you know, as you know, believe in themselves and come to accept their own identity. So yeah, I guess it, it does. It's definitely a continuation of that. I almost feel like the the the, the commitment to realism that kind of defined the previous two films, especially the first film. We now realize that the, that the reality, the very toned down reality that we are shown might actually only be that way because it's been artificially forced into that mold like the the nor- the society of normal people who is afraid of these what these heroes and what they can become have you know squelched any kind of uh any kind of expression of that so that so the, you know the heroes have never been able to develop to their full potential you know uh Price tells Dunn that you know he's only working at like one percent of his potential. So I almost wonder, like after the end of this film, could we move into the MCU or something? Like, could are you going to have like real, like fully powered superheroes in in a few decades? Like, is this something that's going to develop? Um, you know, now that the the opposition has been revealed or not that the, now that the opposition has been kind of crippled because the truth is out there it's on the internet now it's never going away so now as people discover their own abilities is will will we move into a normal comic book world i th- i think that part of what the movie is also saying they're like it seems like it was saying that comic books are are an exaggeration of the reality there like where she's like you know did you know originally superman couldn't fly like he could just he could just jump really really high um and so to me it felt like the movie was giving this idea of like we had these extraordinary people who weren't like shooting lasers out of their eyes and and like doing all of this but who were like still unquestionably gifted and then we took that and we exaggerated it and created like the modern mythology around it even 
even Glass, like, going in and talking to Split, or not talking, talking to Patricia, uh, I forget his lines, but even he's kind of saying, like, uh, you know, this this is reality. This isn't the comic books. Like, he even kind of acknowledged that, like, yeah, you, you know, we're not going to be able to do everything that the comic books, like, that we, that we see in these shows and, and pages because this is reality and it's not fiction. But what if the belief kind of multiplies itself? If the ultimate way to harness these powers is to believe that you have them. Will the belief, you know, as more and more people are revealed, like, will the belief kind of multiply in itself and, you know, increase the powers as public consciousness is becomes more aware it be, of, you know, this being the truth? Maybe. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I felt that in the movie. Like, I definitely felt the idea that, like, the belief in the powers is where the powers, not where they come from, but kind of what allows them to exist um and strength strengthens them but i still feel like the uh the grounding of it still felt intentional not just in a way of of um of them being suppressed but like what the horde is is what the horde is and i'm I'm not sure that he's going to be any more than that same with Uh same with david dunn who's kind of been operating off of like the just the unfiltered belief that he is a superhero um still kind of where he's at and that was actually it led to what what's an issue i had that's not exactly an issue with with the actual content but more of just the execution uh because i think what what you get whenever you do ground it as much as it is is i wonder how effective those recordings would be when they get out Mm -hmm. like I love the moment where uh, Joseph looks over and he sees his dad and then we get the flashback of him being told, you know, like to keep it, keep it a secret um, because I, I think it's a great emotional moment. But when you look at it, it is just like a guy bending a bar and, and like that's something you could see in like World's Strongest Man competitions and stuff. And and if you've seen parkour, you'll see people running around the way that the Horde did. and And so I think by grounding it, with what we've already seen on the internet, you know, I just, I wonder how much of a spark the, the images there would, would, uh, would create because nothing there seems too, uh, unbelievable. Well, that just means that if you have powers, you'll never actually believe it because you're cynical. Uh, yeah, maybe. But I, what I think it, I think it, what he's getting is more of a, those who have ears to hear will hear those who already suspects that they who know that it, there is something off or wrong with themselves like people like david dunn from the first film who know he knows something is wrong with him but he doesn't know what and even as you know and then elijah price comes out and you know tells him this is the answer and you know he's obviously very skeptical and doesn't want to believe it at first but he keeps coming back he keeps coming back and it just gnaws at him until he finally accepts it so I think you know people who have these abilities and who and who realize that there is something different about themselves will. It's it's planting the seed that will grow into, you know, more and more acts, and as more and more people rise up and start to believe, it'll you know it, that will then you know confirm the belief in others. It, it, it's kind of it's a growing thing. Like any uh, you know he see he literally says oh, anything can be expl- anything extraordinary can be explained away, and we have you know this whole montages of uh, Ellie Staple 
giving very clear, rational explanations for everything. And it's, you know, it's ultimately up to what you want to believe, I think. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. I just, it kind of, it reminds me of, of the, the ending scene from Split where, you know, like, are they going to believe we're real? It's like, well, they'll have to now. And, and, you know, I think if people saw him being blasted with a shotgun, they they would. But, I don't know. And it's more of a nitpicky thing. It's just, I just remember every both times I've watched it, every time we see what's actually on the video recording, I'm like, I mean, in today's, like... Well, like the whole battle see... was, uh, was recorded. Everything. Yeah, yeah. but even so, I just, I don't know what would have, like, you... He kind of, he ran out in the field and he... he lifted he, up a car. Yeah, but, honestly, like, I don't know, even that... <laughs> well anyways like i said it's not even a big issue i i i feel like Shyamalan doesn't actually spend any time like on line on social media he i don't know he's entirely aware how cynical the internet is like there is a there is kind of a charming naivete to that ending that you are pointing out but uh hey i, li- I like it i like being i like pretending that the world could be changed by that and uh, I know we, we started with the ending, but I want to I want to go back around to the beginning just to get my thoughts together. I do want to talk a little bit about you know Shyamalan's style. I think it's his style here is far more in line with Split than it was with uh, Unbreakable, and I think I think he took he took kind of the very idiosyncratic style that he sort of developed in Split and really ran with it here. The, the, like the shots feel even more carefully composed. Like the the very almost kind of garish and off-putting camera angles he chooses for a lot of the dialogue scenes. Like he's really trying to make every shot as visually interesting and engaging as possible, but also also doing a lot you know a lot of visual storytelling. Like just the the way he just will just put the camera in the corner somewhere and just allow the scene to play out from you know, an angle that just it, it just. He's able to find all these different angles that just feel wrong, and that you know that, that's perfect for you know a film about you know people trapped in uh, an insane asylum doubting their doubting their very identities. So uh, it just I think he's able to just create a style or take the style that he used the very off putting style he used for for unbre- for split, and to you know just just perfect it even more in this film. This film is just beautiful. Like every few seconds, I, there's another shot that I'm just like in awe of. And there's they're, they're simple shots, often just like a person, just like a close-up on a person's face. But they're they're so beautifully composed, and the just the they're they're, they're you know their face pointing just the right angle to just accentuate everything. And then you know, there's the way he uses the background. Everything about every shot just feels so. There's, there's so much vision behind this movie. Visually, I think it's probably his most impressive, and it's it's definitely, in my opinion, his most stylized. Um, there is a lot more like flair, I think, here than in anything he's done, and I do think like there's definitely some similarities to what he did with Split, but I think this still ends up like carving its own visual identity. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more colorful than Split. A lot more colorful, and I think um, with Split. You never really had you, he, the way he composed his shots. I think were way less exaggerated and split. You know, it, the whole film, because of just the nature of, of of what's going on and the fact that we're we're trapped in there, it feels very confined. It feels very focused on a specific image, even when the the angles themselves might be off putting intentionally. Like it still feels very fixed. Um, whereas here. 
He's got like these super wide angles, these uh, lots of like really like weird and interesting Dutch ang- like uses of Dutch angles and uh, and like I'm just thinking about like the opening uh, the opening credit scene where we're following the guys on the streets and the camera's just like like floating around everything. Mm-hmm. It's just it feels so less constrained than it did before, where it's just it's free to either move around. What's also cool to me is that like I don't feel like he confines himself to any one particular style. Where we do have a cam, like the camera's just moving around wherever it wants now, and now we've got all of these very weird, sharp, fixed angles, and then we've got like this almost GoPro kind of angle on some of these these action scenes. It's like he's he's just throwing all of these ideas he has to wait to make these shots look specific ways, and and nothing really feels like it's off the table. Yeah, or like this most of the scenes with Don and his son it almost feels like it's the most relaxed I've ever seen him behind the camera. Like it doesn't feel like, like unbreakable ever where the camera was always very clearly pointed in one specific direction, you know, to make this, this composition. It, it, it felt kind of free and just like normal steady cam cinematography, which, which is kind of odd coming from Shyamalan. Like and that, that's you know all in the same film with where once they get into the, um into the asylum, it becomes far more, garish and and when i say garish i mean in a very good way like where it's accentuating the 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 feelings you're supposed to be feeling but yeah as you said he doesn't nail himself down to any one style i think you know he just picks the style that's best for whatever moment he's in i like how willing he is to just have the camera be upside down some of those shots are really really cool the way he uses pov like whenever the the cheerleader's on the ground and she looks up and we see him from her perspective so he's like he's he seems far away and he's tilted or whenever he points at the horde crawling upside down, and oh, so we see them from their perspective, which dude, is really, that really shot awesome. Of the horde crawling, you know, the upside down shot coming along the ceiling is is like kind of terrifying. And, and yeah, just he still finds a way to just have really classic looking kinds of uh, compositions, and he does a lot of like push ins, which uh, which I, one I just I really like. It's just a visual image that I think looks really cool, but there's several moments where I always get goosebumps just watching it where where we'll we'll have an establishing shot of the asylum and we'll move in. Or one of my favorite shots of the movie, which is uh, after everybody's out in the parking lot and we've got we're looking at the new tower and we've got um Elijah just to the left and we start pushing in. It's it's really, really cool. And something I mentioned in the, I think it was in our split uh episode I really like the way he uses violence. Um, there's something so visceral and disturbing. Like he, he's very sparing in his violence and very, in his action, but the moments it comes, they feel very impactful. Just the, I will never not cringe at the way he has, you know, uh, glass, Mr. Glass's bones breaking. Oh, like every that's... time is the sound design, the, you know, his scream of pain and, Something just the the way the camera is so unflinching about it, just ah, it's uh, the kid on you know, the kid on the um on the Ferris. It's not a Ferris wheel. What's the, what's that ride called? A little twirler world is <laughs> what it's called here, but I I don't know. Yeah, but just like the the scene, the way you know some you know this is a bad idea, but it's kind of fun. And then he looks down, and the the you know, the stuffed animals are on the ground, and it turns into a basically a horror movie scene. I just like and then just the way the, the things are so simple as you know him 
just falling forward onto the bars, but you knowing how fragile he is, you, it's like you, your mind fills in all the pain. It's just, it's really good. Or just things like when he slashes the orderly's throat. Mm. The way he like shows his bones breaking to me, it's like the cinematic equivalence of someone just holding your eyes and forcing you to watch just something horrific where the it, the camera highlights everything and the sound design highlights everything. And, Oh, it's rough. One flaw I do have with his direction is his direction of action. Um, you know, aside from those really cool and unique shots I mentioned, and I think all the action scenes are peppered with really cool, unique shots. Like, oh, that's an amazing shot. Oh, this is really weird. Just the whole time, all the way through. Um, there's one thing he used with this kind of like a goat, like just sticking a camera on a harness on the actor, just pointing at their face. So it kind of moves around with them as they move. It just felt really awkward. Cause like, there's like a lot of the fights are just David Dunn and the beast kind of hugging slash grappling with each other. And we just get these, a lot of these close shots of them grunting and right in their face. And it's just, I don't know entirely what he was going for, but it doesn't really work. I feel like you know, looking at, at like the last Airbender. Have you seen Have you seen the last Airbender or any of the action scenes from it? Uh, I have not. He, in that movie, he took his propensity for long, t- fluid takes and would shoot like lar- pretty large scale action sequences, either in like single takes or with like minute long takes, which is cool an idea. Except for it also, if you're not careful, it, that reveals all the 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 staging behind us. You'll have like. A lot of people in the background, you know, just standing there and only one person will come at a time. And when you're shooting in these like w- huge wide angles, it just feels so fake and flat and slow. So I think he learned that he couldn't do that. And his answer here was just to kind of just stick cameras in their faces, which I don't think quite works either. So I didn't have an issue too much with like the pacing of his action. And I actually like in doses kind of liked that, that GoPro thing he did. Um, but I think I would have enjoyed it more if it was peppered in to a, like a more uh, cohesive and like well-rounded and dynamic action scene because it is kind of a series of like that's a really cool shot, that's a really cool shot, that's a really cool shot, and now we've got a bunch of just kind of what feels kind of like filler in between where it's it feels like this is just this is a totally functional shot. It's here to show this. And now here's another really cool like idea that he clearly had. Uh, and so I, I can't imagine, I'm, I'm trying to think of just the, the way he would stage and, and choreograph these because it doesn't feel like it's all done at once. It feels like he has a, a, a bunch of ideas he wants and then he decides how he wants to get there. And he's like, okay, well, we'll just do some of this stuff. And then we'll, I want this in here. I know I want this in here. And then, we'll, you know, I mean, they got to keep fighting, so they'll do this. And then I definitely want to use this. And so I think I would like that more if if everything in between felt felt better. You know, what I would say about Pacey is, is more about the way he cuts away to dialogue in the middle of a fight scene. Like, there's this really intense moment happening between the Beast and Dunn. And then we cut to Ellie Staple and... Elijah Price's mom and they're just like talking like they are like over afternoon afternoon tea or something like he's not able to build the large scale action sequence to where every cut feels like really inevitable it's like oh fighting fighting and now oh we're over here talking and now we're fighting again and now we're over here talking and then, and then just there's a lot of awkward pauses sprinkled throughout yeah so that brings me to like what is maybe my biggest issue with uh, the climax uh, I just as many cool individual shots that there are that happen there, I think the whole thing 
is staged really awkwardly. Um, I think that this is a case where if you did pull the camera back the entire way for the whole sequence, it would be like laughable <laughs> where you've got these two guys throwing each other into cars. And then you do have like all of these people just standing around watching the cast of main characters, <laughs> which, you know, okay. It's a, it's a bit on the nose. Um, but it, it also just feels like the idea that, so the fact that those weren't regular police officers, should have been like made clear by just the way they handled that situation which initially i'm just thinking like well he's just not having them behave normally because he just doesn't want them to but like they show up here and so we've got like uh elijah price just like casually strolling around on his wheelchair during the fight and casey's just off over here and then the doctor and his mom are over here and like if we need casey to talk to uh Price, she'll walk over there and talk to him, and when she needs to go talk to the police officers, she'll walk over here. It's, it's like we have like this isolated moment where the action's allowed to happen, and there's it, it's like a sporting event where we just have sidelines where people are just free to do whatever <laughs> they want and have their own little isolated conversations, and and so when we have a shot that's like looking at the action, and then it kind of pans to the right, and you just see this guy in a wheelchair stroll in a frame, just talking with another character, it just. That whole, the whole fight scene and everything surrounding it just it doesn't feel like it was blocked right or, or really staged and, and thought out ahead of time. Yeah, that would also be one of my major criticisms about the climax. But let's let's, uh, let's move back into the talking about the characters. Um, I, I want to talk about Dunn first. Um, I guess from what we can tell, he, you know, he's just been working as I guess the overseer or the tiptoe man or whatever you want to call him for around twenty years. Never mention the tiptoe man again. Ah. And he and Joseph are kind of working together as a team. You know, Joseph is kind of the guy in the chair and they have a, I think they have just a really good, you know, sense of chemistry and back and forth between each other. There's something really just easy going about them. And that's that's something that doesn't feel like Shyamalan at all. There's something so naturalistic about their dialogue and their their kind of chemistry together. It's like maybe Shyamalan has finally sort of learned how to direct people like people. Who knows? Yeah. I I still thought, Sometimes it still felt. Well, there were, there were, there's awkward lines to be sure, but I think, uh, and I know you agree with this. The way he deal, like, just refers to to the internet and to to pop culture in general. <laughs> it just it feels so off. Like one of the funniest moments to me, and maybe not even for the reason it's supposed to be, is like whenever um, he's got the people like punching random citizens as the the Salt Bay meme. Which is, and then for some reason calling it a Superman punch, which itself doesn't really make sense. But then uh, David Dunn's question about like Salt Bay, so what? He just like it. It sounds like he's trying to have David Dunn be like the older guy, and like Joseph and every, all the viewers watching are like, "Oh, come on!" They're like, yeah, it's an internet meme. Like we all know this. It's all funny. When in reality, that joke itself, he. While he's making the joke in the movie, it feels like Shyamalan is David Dunn. He's just like so <laughs> out of touch, like in his attempts to relate. Yeah, and th- there are just other moments like that where it's the way he's using human, like you know, we're gonna get so many views from this. Or you know, Superman punch him. It all it all feels, I mean, really weird and 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 not natural yeah that kind of goes back to what i say i don't i don't feel like he ever spends any time on social media so his 
his idea of what goes on online is very kind of quaint to put it nicely yeah but th- we also learned that uh what's 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 his wife's name um audrey audrey yes that she she uh, died of cancer and, and like you could tell like don is he's a you know a lot happier than he was in unbreakable he, he's found his purpose but there's still i find there's still kind of a real edge of sadness about the character like you just kind of you know he goes home and he's alone he sees his wife you know over there cooking there's it really does feel like he's someone he you know he he's found his purpose but he's also kind of ready to die in a way um which i found kind of interesting i think he's probably the least interesting character in the film um like the movies it's called glass so obviously glass is the primary character but i think even the horde gets a lot more than he does i think that's kind of a function of the way the character is like i really don't know what all that much you could do with the character um in a movie where he's not the main character just you know he had his great struggle he had his you know his great journey and arc in the first film like i don't know that there was all that much they could do I, I, from what from what he has here i do like a lot um i do wish he had a bit more like the way his character ends it just feels i think he's probably the most unsatisfying element of the film however i do like every scene he's in. i think bruce willis is pretty good you know his chemistry with his son, I think, is solid. I just, you know, he's kind of become famous recently for not trying in movies. I feel like he is trying. He's giving a performance here, but there's there's really not much of an arc or anything for him. He's 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 just there for other characters to bounce off of, and he, I think he does that pretty well. What I what I wanted from him is for them to kind of take what they already did and then like do more with it. Where you have you have the idea of him you know, still kind of like being sad about his wife's death, but like accepting his role as the overseer and finding this purpose. And then you have the idea later, which is kind of what's going on with everybody about like this doubt of, of who he is. I wish that they took that and they just, they allowed them to exist more than just a few scenes. Like when you think about him in Unbreakable and the things that define him, the things that define him just flow through the whole movie. It, 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 completely like controls the tone just the sadness in him defines so much about that film and here i feel like a lot of what they do with him are very like isolated to just scenes with him and they don't really feel like they don't have a presence outside of that what what i wish they would do though is have him have more than just like one scene of him looking at the kitchen and then having the memory like a bit more of him grieving and then, and they hinted at this with Joseph, where, you know, uh, Sarah Paulson's character is saying, like, you need this to be true for your dad. I would like, I would like for the first act maybe to have been a bit longer and to have focused more on, on him really needing to, to go on these walks. You know, and again, you had that scene where he's like, no, I think I'm going to go on a walk now. I wish that there was almost more attention from that, where, like, you know, he found happiness and then his wife died and now he needs it. Like, this is where he finds purpose. This is this is his identity, you know, which goes back to the themes of identity in Unbreakable. And so he's finally accepted it and this is his purpose. And that would make the doubt he faces later in the film even more, like, hurt, like painful because 
now this is a guy who who lost the thing that made him happy and he only has a son and and their relationship and what they do here and now the one thing that he's like latched onto that's giving him purpose is being told hey it's just in your head and so if we had focused more on his need to function in this role as the overseer and then focus again a bit longer on his doubt of that even existing I think his character would be a lot more interesting. Yeah. Ultimately, this this just isn't his movie. And I don't know how you could do all that in a film called Glass that is... Well, you know, Glass doesn't really show up until towards the end, and yet I feel like everything they do with him is completely satisfying. And so I don't even know if if it's just a timing issue. And there have been other films where, like, side characters get, like, fully satisfying arcs. Mm-hmm. And so I think... I think if you just maybe trim some stuff up a bit uh, and yeah, I, I just think it's, it's just a, a matter of like moving things around. And I think you can find the time to, cause the stuff is there, like his, his sadness and his, his desire for, for this as his identity is there. His, his eventual sadness about like just the, his, you know, kind of succumbing to that doubt. It's there. It's just, it feels so come and go and i think it it just needs you know not even like this whole 20 minute extension but just a little bit more to like to make the loss of audrey hurt more and to make the doubt of his current identity hurt more like just use what you have it's just use it a bit more i think Mm -hmm. yeah ultimately i think shyamalan is is most interested in in the characters of horde and the glass and then this film feels overall much more of a sequel to split than unbreakable like i feel like he's like whatever Sharmalan had to work out in the character of david dunn when he wrote unbreakable like that feels kind of like ancient history by the time we get to this movie like he's moved on to bigger questions so he doesn't have all that much you know for the character of david dunn here to do which brings us to the character of the horde uh you know once again played incredibly well by uh james mcavoy i think he he's, he's he's there's a good chance he's even better in this film like you know he plays you know like another dozen new characters but even the ones we have like i think he's even better as hedwig like when he's playing the child i think he's got that down he's amazing in the first film i think he's even better as that here um and just the scene there are so many scenes where he just cycles through characters and it's amazing to watch yeah, I don't know that I'd say he's better here, but that's not a slight against this. I just I think he reached perfection in Split, and he just yeah continued perfection here. It's like he, he picked things up where he was and didn't skip a beat. Yeah, and like well, I don't really buy David. Like, there's a like one, maybe two scenes where David Dunn is like sort of starting to doubt. Maybe like I don't really buy that, but I do actually quite. I am quite fascinated by the the way. The horde, the you know, the the cult of the uh, of the beast, the horde, is kind of having an identity crisis when we meet them. Uh, like you know, uh, Dennis and Patricia are clashing because you know the horde's shown himself like three or four times, and no one's believing. Nothing's changing. They also it also seems to be that they're having a hard time coaxing the horde out. It's just like, I just I think it's, it's kind of fascinating. Even though they've you know they've gained more followers. These, Seems like they have like a dozen or so personalities are now on their side since the hordes emer- since the beast's emergence, but even then, you know, doubt is rising up. So there are there, the the doubt is rising up before Ellie Staple even comes in. So they're a lot more susceptible, and I think we also get you know far more scenes with them, you know, with Dennis, with Patricia, uh, you know, just kind of sparring with uh, Ellie Staple, 
And the doubt they're suffering feels a lot more real, I think. Yeah, the moment where I, I think I mentioned this to you before we started recording, I think my favorite scene in the movie is when uh, Elijah talks to Patricia. Um, and, you know, we, we have her crying, we have her doubting. Uh, and it one of the things that I just I love about that scene is that we have this kind of uplifting music playing and we have uh, like the quotes he's using. Like you give this to any mentor character in another superhero movie and it's like they're perfect. They're, you know, like, uh, you know, some of us don't die by bullets. You know, some of us can still bend steel. It's like he might as well be, you know, uh, Pa Kent or Uncle Ben or something like he's he's giving this uplifting thing. Uh, and that's uh, that's what uh, I was leading into. It reminds me of the way that he's treated villains in the previous two films, which is they there's a full acknowledgement that they are the villains but the film just feels almost so friendly with it like it doesn't intent like it doesn't try to get you to hate them like they're just other characters they're the characters that oppose the heroes but they're not like even whenever they acknowledge that what they're doing is wrong it's never i don't know it never feels like we're just intentionally out here trying to stop them or that they can't get their own like quote unquote hero moment. It's just it's so fascinating the way he he portrays just villains in in these scenes. Yeah, um, I I I think I'll, I want to expand more on that later. But I do love the scenes where he interacts with with Kevin and like he knows how to handle each personality. He knows how, you know what to tell them to get them to do what what he wants. Uh like when he's with Hedwig, he's he's always just kind of affirming. I remember when Hedwig asked, you know, what's my superpower? He says, you're nine years old forever. And Hedwig kind of like gets all down and kind of embarrassed and ashamed. You know, he's just a, a stupid kid. He's like, no, you see the world as it really is. And you, you always will. Like he's, he's always able to make each character you know, feel special and to, to affirm what they need. Like we, we know it's manipulation. And yet I, I still believe there is an element of true admiration that he has for these people. I did. That's, that's something that I didn't really, pick up on the first time and watching it now like you know i don't really think that he's insincere like when he claps for hedwig as he dances like he's just he's kind of in awe of this thing but he still he knows how to carry himself uh, around everybody and i i think that that is kind of this this balance of manipulation with just genuine respect like the way that he's like the first person who's ever called patricia ma'am like and he's not even prompted to. He just does it naturally. Like, he feels like he knows what to say to each individual person. And it's not always just because I know this is what I should say. It's like it's like he's treating the identities, you know, as, as they think that they are. And that kind of makes sense for his character. Because his whole idea is that this is real. You know, the, these this is a super villain. These powers are real. So when he's Patricia, he's Patricia. And like he just he speaks to every identity accordingly. And something else that I was just thinking about is how how perfect like thinking back to Split and now their use of him here, how perfect is the Horde just as a villain to introduce into this dynamic, where you have a character who views suffering as necessary. You know, you're pure if you've suffered. He finds one guy who is unbreakable. And another guy with 94 breaks his whole life. <laughs> like, just his ideology 
makes him the perfect character to slide into this already established dynamic where of course he worships this one guy and this other guy is the physical embodiment of what he views as impurity. So like just by nature, David Dunn is his natural enemy. And, you know, I believe it when he's like, you should be kneeling before him. Like it just makes so, it was just such a perfect idea of, of a villain to have, uh, for for both split you know knowing where we're going and then you know actually getting to use that in glass yeah and it but also even more than that uh having you know, convinced the horde that he is truly you know strong he is something truly supernatural and if he meets a man that he can't beat and if like if don is a normal man then so is he it's like Ellie Staple is kind of like the perfect she has the, the perfect example of why he's not supernatural because because he couldn't beat David Dunn and David Dunn is just a normal man. And it's like like it, it, it's an, it's just another element feeding into that doubt that I feel like it just it just totally freaks out the horde. You know, they, they don't know Glass. They don't know his grand philosophy. So as far as they know, they are the only one. They are the, the most powerful being in the universe. And to, now to meet someone who can slap them around, it just, it almost destroys their faith. And I also have to like give credit to the fact that they can, they can give, oh, I'm terrified. The, there's a black widow in my room and now it's not there. <laughs> Should have killed her when you had a chance. Oh, where'd he go? Let me take care of this in like a... They, their bites usually aren't fatal. Well, that's reassuring. Oh, I don't know where it is. This is the meme. This is the part where I get a flamethrower and I burn my apartment down. Oh. Yeah, note, note to self, bring some plastic spiders when I come down. Ugh, no, don't. Don't do that. I would hate you forever. <laughs> okay, whatever. Well, I'll have to... I'll have to take care of this later. Alright, sorry, I guess I'm done. I don't think I'm gonna find it. I'm too scared to anyways. <laughs> I also have to give credit to the movie um, for making the like the reasons for doubt so I guess believable at least for you know a a movie the the fact that that we can come from Unbreakable and from Split see having seen what we've seen and still be like you know what I kind of get why they doubt like with the explanation for the shotgun and the bars and everything it's like. All of this stuff that we thought we just knew for sure is kind of being, you know, pulled pulled back and explained away. Um, I I thought I just kind of thought it was cool that they were able to to make the doubt aspect of the film not feel silly given what we've seen. And I think that what really helps is the Sarah Pulse's performance as Dr. Ellie Staple. She is able to come to each person. In whatever way, it, whereas, whereas Glass, you know, is able to become whatever the person needs to encourage them, she's able to become whatever the person needs to discourage them. Um, and I love that she kind of her her personality and approach shifts between whoever she's dealing with, whether you know, whether it's Hedwig, whether or any other personalities, or or um or Price or Dunn, like whether she's like she'll be either you know patient and kind and like complimenting one or kind of skeptical another but i think like she is also 
what I find really interesting, she's always she's always complimenting them. She's here to destroy their worldview, but she she radiates like what feel what feels like a you know a deep genuine kindness and empathy. I mean, obviously later revelations change, you know how you view her, but just the performance she comes across as someone who is uh, you know deeply cares for these people and wants to do whatever she can to help them and in her belief helping them you know requires convincing them of the truth that they aren't special and you know they're only hurting themselves and others by this belief and just the, the, there's there's something so genuine about her performance that like even rewatching it knowing who she is you can't help but kind of buy into her and I think one of the things that makes it easy to buy into her is because I think there is still that genuine I think to an extent she buys her own logic where she says, you know, we're not executioners. You know, we're not looking for martyrs. Um, this is as humane a way as we can do it. I think she kind of believes that herself. And so she really wants them. I think she she completely wants David, uh, David Dunn and the Horde and everything to just to accept it and move on. Like, that's her genuine desire. She's not one of those people who's like, man, I hope they don't buy this so we can kill them. It's, I, I think she's kind of she respects him and so her her sincerity there almost it feels like her actual sincerity of like that she's really hoping that they'll they'll think this and they'll buy uh, buy into it because there is a somewhat level of concern there yeah and, and I like on the third day where she's almost panicking like especially when Elijah Casey and mrs Price show up to her office she's like I can't have this right now. You know, I've, I've almost convinced them. I cannot have you going there and encouraging this delusion because they're all going to die. And I, I, she, she doesn't want that. And like, it, it, it all kind of works together. You, you, it, you, I was, when the first time watching you, you're kind of wondering like, why is she, why is she kind why is she so on edge when she's talking to them? But then you realize you know, she has those three days or else it's, you know what? Yeah. I, th- I think the thing that I always enjoyed the first time and then somehow found a way to enjoy even more on the second viewing was was Eliza Price as a character and and Sam Jackson's performance because he is absolutely amazing here. Uh, I think this might be one of my favorite. Well, it is one of mine, but I'm going to have to like just look back through everything I've seen him in to determine like if this might be my favorite performance from him in a movie. Yeah. You know, I've heard a lot of complaints about people who just, who just like, I can't believe they stuck, you know, Sam Jackson in a wheelchair and had him like catatonic for the majority of the film. I think that that was you know very necessary, you know, for, for any seed of doubt to take any, you know, take any kind of hold in the character of the horde or done, you can't have Samuel Jackson there just monologuing about you know what he believes. Like it, it, it just wouldn't work. So I think you know taking him out of the picture in that way and presenting him in this you know incredibly pathetic form as you know this you know scrawny old man just hunched over in a wheelchair, drooling on himself. Yeah, it's like that. Like his very pre- the very presentation of him in, in that form, all you know coupled with. Staples constant, um, you know, picking at them. That is that. That's the only way to have any kind of believable doubt. So, but I also think you know, having him in such a low place makes his rise so much more 
satisfying. And, you know, by the time he comes around, you know, he's around for like the last hour of the movie. I honestly, I, I for one don't feel in like any, any sense of loss at all. Like he gets what he needs to get done in this movie and he does, you know, he does it really well. And I don't think, I don't think any more screen time would have made his presence any more impactful. Yeah. It's weird. Like in the moment it's noticeable, especially for his viewing. But then by, I know walking out for myself, I, I didn't feel, I was like, man, I love that last bit, but I wish we had more than I was like, his presence is kind of retroactively felt over the film. Um, and so, and, and like you said, the stuff that he does have is more impactful. Uh, and I love getting to like experience, uh, like realizing what he can still do with other people who like us are just seeing him in this, you know, this drooling state. I, I love the images of him just like rolling by super quickly across the screen in his wheelchair and you got that music playing and and everything so what like once he starts going seeing him come alive is one of the joys of I think the character here you know if we didn't get yeah. that I I don't know how I I don't know if it would be quite as as good but but watching him kind of come back alive as a person it means something and it and the it means more the longer he's not like that so the fact that they're just doubled down on almost the entire second act of having him like this it just in this state that makes it that much more of a of a big deal yeah i like how you said that that we are kind of experiencing him coming back to life from the perspective of the others where we just kind of find him stroll, you know, uh, you know, rolled out into out of his room, sitting in the hallway. You know, he must have come out to the music and, and just little hints where the the guard hears the noise and he goes in and he's like interrogating, you know, uh, Sam Jackson. Oh, the scene where he drops the flashlight just—it's so freaky. Um, like that, like and, and, and the first hint we see, we we, we uh, experience that he actually is completely functional is just the shadow of the wheelchair passing in front of a light on the wall like he he, he kind of eases us into oh you know not only is he back but he has been planning and scheming for years and like he has a master plan that is several steps ahead of us and i think by having him by not having him in the first half of the film it allows that you know that the final revelation of what his plan actually was in the end to have that much impact otherwise i, I feel like it, it pro- I think it would have felt like cheating if we were with him and he was just rolling around like a normal person and then they revealed what happened to the end. I feel like the way he structured it makes that ending more impactful. And I love just the way his plan kind of works out where we see him escape, we see him on the computer, and then, oh no, he's been caught on camera and they go in to take him and they're going to they do the procedure on him and, and he and like he is acting like he's panicking and oh no he's been caught and no and no I, I have been getting out but you realize that his plan was to get caught and for them to think they did they, they won and did the procedure on him so then he you know, he, he could you know, implement his final thing it's we're to, we're told that he's like one of the smartest men on earth and I think we're, we're it's also demonstrated very clearly why he is the mastermind there's never a moment where like where I feel like oh is he really that smart like it's it's it, it's shown, and I I love that uh, in the flash like in the reveal flashback, just while he's under the camera and like the camera is directly under their their you know mounted camera, and he's just wheeling around in circles, kind of like putting on this performance from them, you know, just because he he wants to get <laughs> caught. 
it's that that's a really really great little little flashback so moving back towards the climax uh I think that that it really comes around to the heart of what this movie is. You know, like with both previous films, you you thought the movie was one thing, and then as you move into the end, you know the the, the twist comes, the revelation comes, and we realize we were watching a very different kind of movie, and that, that's what this is. Uh like you you have the entire movie they're building towards. Oh, this tower! This tower has been completed. You know, they they do the, the thing that any normal superhero movie would do, and you know, throw out a few hints of the final location, and then the bad guy comes in, and they're going to the location. The hero has to come, and they're going to fight in public, and like, it's literally telling you this is the kind of movie it's going to be. And even you know, knowing that, and knowing what Shyamalan does and what he is, even then, I was kind of fooled, and I thought we were going to go there. But then, as it comes out, no, they have a, a little bit of a tussle in the front lawn. The beast goes to run away, and oh no, he gets shot and he's dead. And now <laughs> David Dunn's drowned in a puddle, and um, and you know Elijah Price is has been punched in the chest and he's dying. And he tells his mother, you know, this this wasn't a limited edition. This was an origin story, and the the whole thing comes around. It's like actually, you know, Ellie Staple is not you know a psychiatrist there to help them. She is part of this secret organization that is that its sole purpose is to stop these heroes from developing, stop them from being coming public. Anytime they become too big, they swoop in, either convince them that they aren't heroes and give them the the, the weird lobotomy thing, uh, with the with the that whatever that laser thing is, or they kill them. And as she says, you know, there just cannot be gods among us. It's not fair for the rest of us. It's you know, the society is there to to maintain balance to maintain the status quo to keep you know the, the either well, either heroes or villains from rising up to the point where they hurt each other and, and that's a, that's a question that has been explored in many other comic comic book stories uh, like it's 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 very similar to what the incredibles was was dealing with i think also you know the, the, the question of escalation you know the heroes rise and the monsters rise with them so this organization's here to stop them both Okay, I'll, I'll 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 kind of punt it to you while I try to organize my thoughts. What what do you think about this? Uh, the first viewing, I was not really a big fan. Um, for me, it felt cheap. Um, that we've got three movies that now serve as a trilogy, only to like have at the very end have this secret organization, like the reveals of the clovers and everything. This is like this is the ending. You know, Price is killed. David Dunn's drowned, and it's because of this group. So all of these characters that we've... And, and the Horde is shot. Like, these characters that we've known over the last two movies are just very unceremoniously killed off, and it's just been because of this group. It felt like it came out of nowhere, and it wasn't earned. Um, I liked it a lot more the second time. I still have issues, um, but I like the idea of it a lot more because I think it makes unbreakable and split all the more interesting because you know this one is a lot about like this this personal doubt of their their own powers but that's kind of felt in both unbreakable and split both in personal ways and then in a more macro way where like you have david dunn doubting that this could be true you also have elijah price saying like there there must be someone like this out out there you know i've been doing this for years all of the all of the horrible things I've done. It's been for this, and I finally found somebody. And then 
you kind of have something similar with Split that I didn't even really think of until uh, watching Glass today, which is that what's the whole thing she's trying to do? Like, she's trying to show that this is real. You know, DID has this extent. This is how... This is how far it can go. This is how far their belief can actually physically take them. And again, she's, you know, in the deleted scenes, she's getting shot down by um, Sterling K. Brown's girlfriend and in the lectures, you know, she's being dead. It's just she's facing this unbelief from everybody. So whenever you go back and like re-examine Unbreakable and Split with the revelation that there is an actual organization working to keep it that way it makes more sense like this is an externally created level of disbelief that this organization is trying to maintain for society and so it mm-hmm. felt less out of the blue this time and i love that the the primary tool of this organization is disbelief like the previous two films have been about you know, you have to believe you have to accept who you are and then you can become it and the organization's main tool even before violence is to is simply doubt if they could, you know, if they, all they have to do is, you know, layer in a few seeds of doubt and their work is all but done. Yeah. And, and so that, that, that idea that it's taking this, this idea of doubt that we've kind of seen without even realizing it uh, in the previous two films, at least not realizing how, like how intentional and cohesive it is across all three and then being born out of that. Uh, I think it works a lot better. I still kind of wish that there, that there were more. I don't know if this was an idea that that he had early on, or if this is an idea that he had like for Glass. Um, the idea feels like it works a lot better. I, the I, the corporation just kind of coming at the very end, like with with the the clovers being revealed like this is all happening in the last 30 minutes of the movie it still feels like a really really big reveal um out of nowhere and just in terms of like the logistics of it and the the actual practicality of it but the idea that there are these external forces that have been working previ- like previously through the other two films I think it it works better now rewatching those two and then watching this. And that that whole de- idea that th- this isn't a limited edition, this is an origin story. Where th- this is not what we have been trained to expect to be a final culmination of build up. This is just the first chapter. Like glass, you know, like unbreakable split in glass. Like they're they're just the prologue to the real story, and. This, you know, I, I feel like it's fitting for Glass to be the final film. You know, it was Glass that was able to get through to David, David Dunn, and to convince him to be the hero. And so to make the final film about Elijah Price, you know, finding a way to beat this organization and reveal to the world that heroes are heroes and villains are real. And so now going forward is when the actual comic books would begin. And this whole thing, this whole origin story, we've been like the, 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 it, again, you know, it's a reveal that kind of recontextualizes everything we've seen to where all of that was just the prologue to it, you know, as in Glass's master plan to create a world where we could actually have those comic book stories going forward. I I just find that just such a cool twist and just a kind of way to re to restructure the entire 
experience we've been having across these three films. Yeah, and it, it's not one of those twists where it's like, oh, it's just this one reveal, and then, ha, it was just the whole time. Like, it is kind of, well, it, it was an origin story the whole time, but it still, it feels kind of natural. Now watching all three in a row, knowing where, where we're going, knowing the idea that the whole idea across all of this is the, is the idea, or is the fact that there, there are these people out there and they're among us and we're just waiting for the catalyst to, to blow this whole thing up. It kind of makes them work that way. Like it doesn't feel weird considering them as such now. And especially given that the moments of like emotional catharsis in both previous films were all about acceptance and, you know, and the, you know, believing that they were more believing that they were special, believing that you know Casey believing that she could fight, or or building a connection with Kevin, like, or you know it, it, Elijah Price discovering his purpose, or done done you know going into the the train station and finally accepting that he's a hero. Like, all the big emotional moments were centered around belief, and now du- uh, Price has provided the tool. To where you know millions of other people around the world can have their own moment of emotional catharsis, their own moment of realization, their own you know emotional climax, as it were, in the same way that all you know all our previous heroes had. Like it, it's, I think it, it's the fitting conclusion for you know a series that has been about belief and acceptance, you know acceptance as the key. More so than just people punching each other would have been. Yeah, you know, that, that brings I think. One of the things that a lot of people don't like is that just everybody dies in the end. Like the whole thing was this elaborate sacrifice by Glass. You know, he brought Don and uh, and the Horde together. So, you know, he said you know as tools, as pawns in his own game. Like they themselves don't really matter all that much. And like for me, I, I am totally okay with both of them dying. I think I think all three characters just had to die for the way this film is, for the you know, for the structure of the film, for this film's themes to work out, and just the the way that Shyamalan was, you know, playing with the tropes. Like I I'm totally cool with them all dying. I do wish Dunn's death was a bit nobler. Like just drowning in a puddle it, is not a hero's death. This is a story about heroes. He is a hero. I feel like he should have gone out in in a way that was more heroic, you know? Especially considering that's something they're willing to do with, you know, because they did it with Glass, essentially. You know, as he's going out and he, he's saying, like, I wasn't a mistake and this is an origin story. So we still kind of have that moment of of peace at death and, like, death on his own terms almost. And so... Yeah, I think Glass and Crumb get really great death scenes. And like they they you know, they set up waters his way to so it has to involve water he probably has to drown but just the way it was done having him so pathetic and helpless and just dying it just it doesn't if this is a world where the tropes are real that this having something so just almost not almost like nihilistic in his end and, and pointless it doesn't feel true to the isn't even feel true to the themes of the story like. I give it, give him an element of choice. Uh, maybe if they threatened his son, like we're gonna kill your son if you don't do this to yourself, or, or just just something to give him that last moment of heroism. It is it is just such an unsatisfying end to watch that entire film with him to become the hero to just 
die in a puddle. Yeah, like you, I, I'm totally cool with everybody dying. I think it works well. Um, but yeah, his death, it whenever it was done and he was like truly dead, I was like, wait, wait a second. Like, that's that's how they're going to do it. And I didn't have that moment with the other two characters. So I was like, there's just something that feels feels off here um and i get it like yet his last moment his last stand and fight against um the horde is what he'll be remembered for and so he still has that heroic memory but even still it's it's rough for us as viewers to, to see that without any sort of real reason or or payoff um but going over to um to crom actually let's go back to casey you talked about last episode that you didn't really get much from her in this episode, in this movie. Did that change at all? Like, did you come around to to the way she was used? Uh, not a whole lot. I I still have some of the same issues that I did initially here. And what would those issues be? Um, it's it feels as if her relationship, and I know we talked a bit about it, where there there seemed to be genuine sympathy or or, or pity and sadness for Kendall, and just this uh. Kevin Wendell Crumb, uh, the state he's in. And so I get it. I get that you have kind of that foot in the door for that kind of story. But I still, the, the connection that this movie thinks that Casey has with Kevin, and, and I I know that for you it, it is there. And so I can't even say it's just not there. It's For me, it it's not felt there. Like whenever she has to go back to see him and she talks to Kevin and then she's there for him in the last moment, it feels like it's operating off of something that's just not there at least in the extent that the film thinks it is um and so that's one of my issues it's just i, I don't really feel that strong connection between her and kevin um uh, like when he's like uh, are, are we at, like are we really friends and so it's like you know she he asked her to kill him once and then she had one conversation with him in a psych ward and so for that to be his death i'm like i, I don't really feel this um, and then my other complaint, and this is kind of just my complaint with all the cast of side characters, is that <laughs> during portions of the film, their their point is essentially just to try to figure out what's going on and then, like, stumble across something in a comic book, have these, like, side conversations with other people where we get more exposition about, like, comic book lore and everything it's it's just it feels so functional where like she picks up the comic and she sees the bars broken and he's there and he sees the villain thing which is a great villain just like or a, a great visual the purple glow of, of the villain area in the comic book shop is great but it just even with a uh, dr stable where she's over there and she's just here's like this is his whole plan the whole time like he's always got that thing it's just we've got these characters who are just moving through scenes having information kind of just like easily stumbled upon and i don't know yeah the 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 use of the comic book sources is i think part of that really quaint way that uh m night uses pop culture references as we were talking about earlier like i don't i don't think he realizes that just how well versed in comic book logic you know the your normal person has become i feel like he in his mind he thinks 
the audience is still just as ignorant of comic book stories as they were back in 2002 when they they were they were scared you know, to sell the movie as a comic book movie. which is weird considering he was a lot more like you have that one exposition dump but i feel like it was the way that the tropes were were explored in that and discussed felt a lot more naturalistic in in that one whereas here we have the like this this was an origin story here are the side cast of characters and the cringiest one to me was like I was always told that when the hero and the villain come to it, they have the final showdown. And, like, it's just, it's so, mm-hmm. like, on the nose and, like, spoon-feeding. <laughs> the classic turn. The enemy becomes the ally because of his unflinching sense of good. Like, what the heck? I give... Oh, uh, yeah. I give... I'm more forgiving there just because at the, at that point, he just looks like <laughs> such an emotional mess and he's all... Yeah, his shoulder had just been crushed and he's probably delusional at this point. So, sure. But <laughs> it's, it's a hilarious line. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, he... Shyamalan doesn't seem to think his the audience or the world knows anything about comic books and that, that does make a lot of those scenes really hokey. But going back to Casey... Let me tell you why you're wrong and why she's awesome. Uh, I, I, what, what do you think about my, my, uh, my theory in the last episode that that maybe she has powered herself? The line that gave it more credibility was whenever Doctor Staple followed her outside, you know, begging her to help, and she says, you know, the, the way you get to him, it's almost supernatural. I was like, okay, maybe there is something here, and so. So I get like I'm I'm not even opposed to the idea of it. I just wish it felt more natural. And I guess I can force myself to accept that she's drawn to him because of that. But even still, like and I, I guess yet yeah, Casey's the only real human Kevin has seen since like you know the whole the whole time this has all been going on. So there would be that. It's just I don't have Casey's supernatural ability for sympathy. And I like and Casey's also not the only person that I've seen for years. So I get it, like, you can kind of convince me of it for the characters. It's just the emotion in the scene doesn't work because I haven't come close to experiencing, like, not even just like, oh, well, obviously I could never experience that. Even just having the film help me experience it, it just doesn't feel fully earned. Um, hmm. And so as as their last interaction happens, I'm like, man, I'd, y'all have actually spoken to to each other, like, all of two times before now it's just this doesn't feel like the natural kind of death for for um the horde or kevin you know this this character that he's dying now and his last the whole emotional um point of his scene is this relationship it's just it's it's a relationship that i really had no investment in okay well i love her character in this movie uh I, I like, you know, she's so much more open. Uh, like, there's little things that, that you know, actually like, shockingly subtle storytelling for um for M. Night Shyamalan. Like, things like where she's wearing the jacket from the, the Philadelphia Zoo. Um, or, like, she isn't hiding her scars. You know, she's wearing, like, sleeveless shirts. And you, you just see all her the self-harm scars. Like, she's so much more open. You know, she has come out of that experience and has been reborn just as a, you know, a stronger person. I, you know, the, the, her, I like that her first instinct when he's caught isn't fear because, like, because I think she knows she has nothing to fear from the beast. She, she, like, she's, she doesn't. There's no fear anymore in that relationship. 
So the only thing left is the pity. You know, she she doesn't really like or care about Dennis and Patricia and them. But I think you know, seeing just that one glimpse of Kevin Wendell Crumb when he comes out as just this horrified, haunted, pathetic person who 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 just hides behind these other these other personalities because of the hurts that have been done to him. And so I I, th- I think the connection is based upon her seeing herself in him. She was someone who, you know, lived that life of suffering and completely retreated within herself. She was able to, you know, find healing through that experience. And now she sees Kevin Wendell Crumb as this person who who is kind of in the same place she was, who has spent his life suffering and is, you know, living his life hiding behind these these other personalities. And I like to think I like to think that she is powerful. Like, you know, her power, the, the empathy, and her touch, actual loving human connection between her. And it's not, I don't think it's romantic at all. It's, it's just it's just basic human empathy between her and him is able to you know to to cut past all these all the defenses. And that's what they are. His personalities are defense mechanisms, and you know her just touching him. And just showing real human love is able to, to just cut past all of that and to bring him out. And he's not even, and the first couple of times it happens, he's not even ready to do it. He, he's like freaking out. Like, I don't want to be here. Why do you keep bringing me back? He is, he is so just done with the world. The world has been only, has only been suffering to him. And so in the end, as he's dying, he's, you know, he's having his like one of probably the first real genuine human connection probably in, in, in like over a decade, in years, you know, probably since his dad died. So like it, the line where he says, you know, it's good to be in the light. Her, I just find like the, her love and her, her empathy for him is able to, to not only draw him out, but to give him the, the strength to hold on to life for himself, for him to, you know, to make his own decisions, to, to, you know, to come out of himself in the same way she did at the end of the first film. And to actually, even as he's dying to be able to relish this connection that he has with her, however simple and small it is. And just, you know, just, just to say for a character who has spent his entire life in the dark to say, it's good to be in the light. I don't know. I just find that really emotionally impactful. I, I really do like the idea of it. And it, honestly, most of my criticisms of this film are, are, I don't mind the idea. It's just made. There's something about the execution. Like, like with you know we we're talking about done. I like what they have there. I just wish they did more with it. That's kind of how I feel with their characters. Um, where it's like the idea of what they're doing with them works. It's just I would like to have had more than just these these two isolated scenes that that didn't really last long, um, and feel like they're based upon more than just a singular scene from the previous film as well. Because when you think like you have the the ending shot of, of them all in the train station and Joseph is there and that like that's his dad in the video and and uh, Mrs. Price is there that's Elijah going there or in the video and she's there because this guy that she talked to like two times was was there and I get that there's a well it's not just that it's it's the it's also the thing that changed the entire course of her life yeah it's but again from being a victim. To uh, I love that, that the scene where she goes and asks if she can talk to the to, to to Kevin and she's like, no, you're the victim. Like she's like confused as to why she would yeah, even want to put herself line. in that situation again. And just the look in Auntie Taylor Joy's eyes, like 
she she no longer views herself as the victim. That is that is not her. Like, sure, she has suffered, but she's she will no longer allow herself to even cons- to be thought of as prey. Yeah. So the thing is, I don't dislike her character either. I still like her. It's just I don't know when we have these other characters whose dynamics and relationships I feel more invested in, and I feel like have propped up more organically through the story. Uh, like I just the the relationship with with Elijah and his mother is just it's so established and it's so integral to to the whole story and the same with with Joseph and his son the idea of him being the hero his son wants him to be and and that being like why it hurts so much for Joseph to hear that like oh you're you're just wanting this because you need it to be true like there's all of these things that have their roots that's a that's a great scene by the way because it's true would you look back to the scene where he threatened his father with a gun? That was because he so desperately needed this to be true. Because if it wasn't true, you know, his father was going to move away and leave him, and he, you know, his life would be destroyed. Like she's 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 even though you know her she's ultimately lying, she is getting at a deep truth, you know, painful truth for the character in that moment. Yeah, and, and like you know, that scene does work really well, and. And so you have these other dynamics and, and relationships that just, I feel like, have their roots run so deep through these three stories that kind of weave in and out of everything going on. And I just, I don't feel like Casey and Kevin are on the same level as the other people, but it's it's played the same. And and I'm, I'm actually, like, I'm glad that it works for, uh, for, for people. It's just, for me personally, I, I don't feel as much um or or not not care but i just i'm not as invested in in their story as i am the rest of it what if you view her as a powered individual where dunn's happiness comes from him accepting who he is and going out and and, you know saving people what if this is the same thing for her this is you know she you know she was in pain she suffered and now she's like an emissary of hope to those who were in the same position and maybe maybe Kevin Wendell Crumb is the first person she has saved ultimately. But like it, it, maybe like the connection she has is like just as much of a need as it is for Dunn to go out and like he needs to save people. He needs to fulfill his de- destiny or else he's, you know, he's gonna be that miserable wreck for maybe it's the same for Casey. This is, this is who she is simply. And, and I think if I accept the idea and I'm not like, I'm, I'm too, uh, uh totally cool to accept this idea and entertain it if we have the idea that she is superpowered i think that kind of has to be true for her that that is what her role is um now that she no longer sees herself as a victim and she sees other people that you know this is just as someone who just with this literal super ability to feel that connection for them that just has to be what she does and so again like i'm cool i like that idea it's just honestly i don't know anything else to say other than i just i just wish it was there more because it's it's one thing to have like this kind of head knowledge of something like intellectually i understand what all this is accomplishing but without feeling it in the moment for for extended periods of time we, we just have these couple of isolated moments um and like they're good moments but even the moment she has with Kevin, it's funny you say that because those are like the most emotional scenes in the film for me. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I think are you glass... invalidating my emotions, James? How dare you? 
And that's like I'm like I said, I'm I'm super happy for other people who can't. And I think you yeah, know, I get that. I'm not even sure if it is just this fault of the film, but for whatever reason, just because I feel like the other the themes and dynamics and relationships and ideas of these other things that are revolving around this film just have roots that are just dug into the fabric of what these three films are like going back to unbreakable uh not obviously i can't fault her for not having you know emotional roots in unbreakable but even in split as what i walked away from that movie with wasn't even like her relationship with kevin i would have never even guessed that that that's how they would have used her here and so so yeah, I just, it's not quite as present for me. So I just I don't feel it as much as I do these other things. Okay. Okay. There was one last big thing I wanted to talk about. What do you think is the philosophy of this film? I I kind of asked this question at the beginning, but I, there's another thing I want to talk about. Just I, I've seen like various groups kind of making statements about what they think this movie's about, whether like. In the end, you what it's about is a group of people who have, whether they've been forced to live in the shadows or just simply there through ignorance, you know, are finding about about who they are, and they're rising up against this you know, this vague enemy, this this group that has is designed to keep them down, and now they are rising up. It's you know, it's about empower, you know, self empowerment and all of that, and. Like there, there are two different philosophies that I, it seems to be kind of gleaning from for me. Like one is kind of like a neo-Marxist. And I don't want to get political at all, but I, I think I'm just trying to trying to I'm just trying to figure out what the film's internal philosophy is. Like we have the Marxist ideas, the whole thing, the whole where society is you know divided between you know the oppressed and the oppressors. Where you have the 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 one percent, the group that sits on top. And by the very nature of being on top, require uh, is pushing others down. You know, it's it's you know they're trying to maintain the status quo because, you know, if, if the others rise up, they lose what they have. Or, and on the other hand, there also seems to be possibly like a bit of like Randian philosophy that that people accuse uh, people, you know, Brad Bird or uh, Zack Snyder of having. Um, there were there are these special individuals, and we as society hold them back. And they should be allowed, you know, to live as as they are. R- Randian philosophy and Marxist philosophy are, are very are not not very uh, co- you know coherent bedfellows. But I I can see both of those ideas possibly present. I, I, but at the same time, I don't feel the kind of anger that Marxism brings. Shyamalan goes out of his way to try and humanize the villains. You try and try and humanize. Dr. Ellie Staple, like far, you know, far more than he needs to, to try and, you know, show her struggling and regretting what she's done. And also explaining herself of, you know, having a good point of if you, if, you know, if gods rise up among us and y'all are just fighting each other, what happens to the rest of us? Is, is not the world better if everyone's the same and we're all normal? So like that, that, that's not the, that's not the villain of a Marxist philosophy. But at the same time, that that whole idea of, you know, of the the oppressed class does seem to come from a more I don't know. I, I'm just kind of talking through. It. I I have no, 
I, I don't really have a set idea of what I think the film is saying in, in that regard. And I'm not trying, I'm definitely not trying to take it in a political direction. I'm just trying to understand what it is. Like, wh- what do you, do you think like M night is trying to like, ma- is like kind of creating his own kind of philosophy of melding together a couple of different things, or do you think it, it falls into either of those camps or do you think it's something entirely different? Part of me wonders just how, how much thought he's even given to, to the actual like way the message is carried. I think, what I walked away from is just this idea that the films, you know, especially considering the ending of this and the ending of Unbreakable, it feels like the philosophy of these films are that identity and self-discovery are one of the greatest goods. And I think it thinks that just mainly because it doesn't really go out of its way to villainize the villains. I mean... Mrs. Price is right there with the other two as they're she's broadcasting her son's, you know, villainous plan to the world happy. And so to me it just it feels like the ultimate good you can achieve is discover, you know, who you are and what your like, you know, what it is about you that that has been suppressed. Um and as for, you know, like these external forces at work um against it part of me wonders if he's just taking these kind of ideas that that we're just familiar with the idea that you've got the the people on top who who suppress the other people if he's just using familiar or conventional kinds of storytelling to tell the the idea that he really wants to tell which is is more about just the importance of identity and discovery um so i I wonder how much he latches on to these other things or if it's just this is a natural way to get to my point, people will understand this. Yeah, that, that's ultimately the feel I am getting as well, where the whole, like, you're t- taking bits uh, and pieces of what is, you know, very present in the, the whole political conversation today and just, I guess, you know, using common vernacular as, in, as, you know, in a way or something. Yeah. And then speaking of, of you talking about where he, where he sympathized with the villains, it is very fascinating yet again that glass, you know, for all the evil he does and he kills the poor orderly, that really nice guy who is just trying to help. everyone. <laughs> like, you know, we like, we all know a guy like that. You're talking, you know, uh, grape seed extract mm. and whatever else, you know, multi, take your multivitamin, like Daryl, I think is his name. Like we all know a, a, just a nice guy like that who wants to help everybody. And he killed him like the bastard. But <laughs> just despite that unforgivable crime, he's, placed as like a great philanthropist like similar to the way to where he was at the end of um unbreakable where he he is giving the world permission to believe he's giving the world heroes he's giving however many millions or thousands of lost and lonely miserable souls a reason to live and that's a good thing like like he I, i find that just so fascinating the way Shyamalan does not allow us to completely hate the villains, despite you know being very clear about that you know about how bad they are and the things they are doing being evil, and the ultimate good, like the, the greatest good that happens in this entire series, was the result of of a plan the villains set up. Like he really is that like Lex Luthor figure, at least in certain versions of Lex Luthor, where he like where he opposes Spider Man, uh, he opposes Superman because he believes Superman is bad for the world. Like he believe like he believes that he is doing what is right and there's also the ego involved you know 
he wants to be proven right. You know, he wants his own identity and 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 you know existence on Earth to have purpose. So it's selfish, but also I feel like mixed with that kind of uh, philanthropist notion. Yeah, and it is cool that that's why I feel like you know the the point of this film and like the thematic statement. It feels like you really can trace it just back to that final confrontation in Unbreakable. Um, he, he kind of get he has that moment of self discovery, and then he kind of relapses uh, in the time between, and then he gets it back in Glass. And so it's like we're not like a lazy retread, but we're seeing this kind of confirmation or, or validation. And yeah, like it's kind of the the point has been there from the beginning. So moving into the final section, I think we're just gonna skip the uh, the score discussion tonight. Uh, there weren't like I like the score a lot. I think it's like similar to Split. It's very engaging in the context of the film. Yeah, I, I wasn't able to to listen to the soundtrack and and get individual tracks, but just in the film, moments that I liked a lot are getting to hear the the Kevin Wendell Crumb theme played over the uh, the scene, like the transition into the scene from Unbreakable when we're on the train. That's really cool, um, and then hearing that main theme kind of come back as as Glass is is tr- is you know trying to ag um, David Dunn on to to act you know as he's talking to him on the intercom, and uh, and the last thing this happens just at different moments uh, with the horde. I I love just the jerk like weird schizophrenic use of strings here. Like whenever, uh, whenever he's transform transforming down in front of like the the homeless people down there, or or whenever um, the moment that I loved was when Elijah Price was looking through all the notes and he discovers you know what the horde is, and as he just he like almost throws away, he is like it's just super excited, and then you you hear that like weird jerky kind of strings again. It's just, it feels like it's there to highlight moments as opposed to just like score the scene. And or it's really effective to me. Yeah. The, the beast, that really like guttural cello or that like really screeching sound that makes it very unnerving and, and yeah, well used. Um, so let's just move into our star rating. So James, uh, what, what do you give this film out of five stars and how would you uh, rate, uh, rank? The um, so I give the film, I'm moving up from a two and a half to a three and a half now. Oh, wow. Yeah, I liked it quite a bit. And honestly, I, th- I think I, I put this in a message group that, that we're both in where the, the movie feels like it's wearing the bones or it, it's got the bones or skeleton of like a five star film. Like everything here, the ideas of everything here, I just I love. I think the way it utilizes themes really subtly and then in other ways, just like in these grand ways it should uh, from the previous two films is really, really great. It's some of the most interesting uh, and original kind of ideas you see in this genre. And so there's just so much that I love. The clunky dialogue does really... Yeah, I, I there's think... There's a lot of that. Of his good films, like if we're talking of all of all of his filmography, it's not. But if we're, if we're isolating his good films, I think this might have the worst dialogue of the good ones. There, there are a lot of different moments where it's just... It, it can get really, really cringy. Yeah, like after, after the climax... When Ellie Staple goes back to her um her secret society meeting and tells them why they're all there, <laughs> as yeah, the moment like there's so many moments of just giving us weird information, and also I don't I don't want to 
to tell Shyamalan, hey, don't use humor. Because when he uses humor and I like it, I, I love it. <laughs> it's like it's either this... Any any humor coming from uh, Samuel Jackson is, is beautiful. Yes. But there are other moments like like with him at the at the shop or whatever. I, I like when you go, geez, let your dad go for a walk. <laughs> that line is great. But but some of the stuff afterward, like it's just it feels weird. And then like as much as I do like Daryl, just the whole like uh you know gotta get those uh whatever he like, all of his nutritional facts. Just some of these moments of, of humor just feel really kind of off putting and and awkward and whatnot. And then you've got all of his weird ways of of relating it to to modern pop culture and stuff that feels off. So so it, I think the script just in terms of dialogue is often like ventures into like genuinely bad territory mm-hmm. and and there are a few things that i would have done differently with a couple of the characters and stuff but overall i i definitely appreciated this film's strengths uh, a lot more this time and more than just appreciating its strengths just kind of discovering some of its strengths even in just this conversation now i think i'm growing to like the movie more uh talking about it uh as for um ranking them i still with every rewatch, as we've said before, Unbreakable just continues to move up. So that's definitely my number one. Um, in terms of quality, it goes split and then glass. But but this recent watch, just because of how interesting it is, visually, I think it's you know maybe the best of them. Is by far the most visually compelling, I think, uh, and stylized. And I think it has some of his coolest like in the moment direction. So on mm-hmm. a level of like personal preference. I might have to try to like reevaluate how how it stands with Split, just in terms of my subjective enjoyment of it. Um, but for the time being, I'll, I'll go Unbreakable Split Glass. Yeah, so I actually give it three point five as well, like just for the reasons you mentioned. Like the the dialogue is really the Achilles heel, and that's not to say all the dialogue is bad. When it's just two people sitting across from each other, very intently talking at each other, I adore this movie. There are so many wonderful scenes, which. Where he has that kind of awkward where the camera's right in their face and they're just like super intently talking talking at each other. I love. Um, and he's always finds oh, a scene I have to mention. Two scenes I have to mention. The pink rub scene. I can't believe we didn't talk about the pink rub scene. That scene is brilliant. The way he uses each character gets their own angle. Like the way uh, she'll talk to one character and they're framed in a certain way. Then she goes to a different character and then that conversation is framed in its own way. And then she, like, or where like uh, Glass kind of views her this kind of offset off center uh tilted dutch angle thing um and and as she makes a point the camera will often like jump over the 180 line like you don't even you don't even notice it at first but it, it like jumping over the 180 line just makes you it, it feels off and it kind of puts you in the discomfort of the character's feeling another shot i wanted to mention when um the scene you talk about you know where some people don't die from bullets and yet it is true I, you know, he has that entire conversation and he's kind of framed in shadow. And then as he makes his point, he kind of wheels into the light and it's so cool. It just kind of leans into the camera. It's amazing. Like he he just shoots the heck out of all the uh, conversation pieces. But back to where I was. <laughs> um, hey, it so, deserves to be highlighted. Yeah, like I said, so, his directing in this is just phenomenal often. Yeah, so there's a lot of crappy exposition um, like in just all the scenes where they go to the comic book stores and then, and you know, have epiphanies is really cheesy. The pop culture references don't work. Um, and then the climax is kind of awkwardly staged as a, a, just Chamon just doesn't do action all that well. 
So like there are a lot of flaws throughout, but I can I very consistently throughout the film am always engaged. Like all the thriller aspects are perfect. Pretty much all the character beats really land for me. I'm not very happy with how done ended, but that's that's probably my main complaint alongside the dialogue. So yeah, it's 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 a, it's a flawed movie, and you have to if you want to like it, you have to you know learn to live with a lot of issues. But I I do find just so much to love in this movie. So yeah, I, I rate it 3.5 out of, out of 5 stars. And as far as ranking, it would be Unbreakable, which is nearly perfect split than this. And for and, and Unbreakable and Split are pretty close. Like split, I, I view Split to be a really great movie. Um, and this one is a bit of a step down. It's not nearly as perfect as the previous as, as the previous two. So yeah, it's it's pretty much a descending order with release. But I, I don't mean that in a way, oh, they got, each each one was worse than the last one. I don't mean it in that way. Just that's just how it turned out, you know? Yeah, it's always unfortunate when that happens because it, kind of carries that connotation of oh it's just a series that gets worse as it goes on it's like maybe in terms of certain aspects of its quality but it in its themes and you know where it really counts this movie is is in or this trilogy is interesting from start to beginning and and the way that it concludes a lot of its ideas is really really great yeah and each one found a way to be important and to bring its own big ideas and to you know, each one really is a huge step forward in the trilogy at large. There's no just like sequel for the sake of sequel. Each one, you know, adds something vital, I think, to the to the series. Like you can't fully understand Break Unbreakable and Split in my in, in my opinion without Glass. Like that Glass does, as all good Shyamalan endings do, it recontextualizes and I think makes better the previous films. So as far as the box office, uh, it did very well at the box office. It uh earned 111 million domestically and 135 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of 246 million. Uh, it's a bit of a drop from the uh, 278 million that Split made, but you know that's still pretty great on a, the modest 20 million dollar budget. Uh, it got very mixed uh, reviews from critics. Uh, it has a 37% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 42 on Metacritic. I'm always hesitant to try and ascribe motivation, but from what I could tell, like. A lot of people just didn't like what this movie chose to be like. I can't count the amount of times I saw the term uh, missed opportunity thrown around. Like a lot of the criticisms were just like complaining. Like, like why is this film set in a hospital? It's so boring. Why just people talking so boring? Um, or like things like a lot of people said they wanted the whole movie to be about the first act where it was just, you know, David Dunn hunting down the horde or people complaining that Samuel Jackson wasn't really a presence for most of the film. Like, a lot of the complaints were just centered around stuff like that. It's really hard to find like a central theme of criticism aside from like some of the dialogue things and like people joking that I don't think M. Night Shyamalan actually reads comics, which is kind of funny because I, I don't think Shyamalan has read comics since like the golden or silver age. Like I feel like he stopped reading before comics actually became so subversive. Just the way he talks about these tropes as if, as if they're still in use today. So yeah, like, I feel like a lot of the reviewers, they didn't want a Shyamalan movie. They wanted a superhero movie. And that's the thing when reading so many reviews of the good Shyamalan film. It's like they they so rarely feel like they actually they actually engage with what the movie's about. So much of it seems to be kind of wrapped up in in expectations of what they thought it would be, what they wanted it to be. And that's like why I always saw you know, like why Shyamalan's films you know they they improve on rewatch, they grow and develop because there's they're they're almost never what they appear to be. And so much of the disappointment surrounding this film 
seems to be, you know, they wanted it, what it appeared to be at first on the surface. Yeah, it's and that's why, you know, whenever I first saw it and I was, you know, right down the middle uh, on it, sometimes leaning maybe more negative, uh, I, I found, like, no camaraderie in, in the negativity, though, because... I did like what the movie chose to be about. Whenever I remember, whenever people were, you know, talking about how hyped they were to see that, like, what's Shyamalan going to do with the, just a more conventional action kind of movie? And I'm like, the the teaser seemed way more like a thriller, and that's kind of what I was hoping for. And so I lo- I love what it chose to be about. Um, and yeah, I don't I don't really find a lot of crossover in in a lot of my complaints outside of the dialogue with other people because, like you said, it feels very. Um, scattershot in terms of trying to find a cohesive problem outside of just like well i wanted something that wasn't what this was and yeah it's it's a bit frustrating even as someone initially who wasn't super into it yeah and as we talked about this film does have a lot of flaws so i don't i don't want to just write off all criticism as unmet expectations or like results of unrealistic expectations but you just i can't help but get the feeling from you know seeing so many of the same complaints you know you for use of the phrase like missed opportunity in the reviews that I, I just don't feel like all that many people really engage with what this was and that, that's an issue i have with a lot of larger criticisms like movies like let's say the last jedi or batman vs superman where i don't feel like a lot of these people could actually tell you what the movie is about like some of the loudest voices that are hating on it like if you like if you sat them down like if and asked, you know, could they tell you what the filmmakers were going for? A lot of the time, I don't think they could. And for me, I have a hard time taking criticism all that seriously. If, if in order to declare something bad, you have to know what it was trying to be. Like, if it's bad, it's bad because it, you know, it didn't succeed at what it was, what it was attempting. And I feel like so much of criticism these days doesn't feel any need, you know, to at, to truly ascertain what the film is trying to be about to declare to, before they they pompously declare something to be you know trash or garbage like they're willing to do that without even you know putting any good faith effort into trying to understand it it just strikes me as just so unprofessional and lazy just like it because ultimately you're just attacking straw man if you don't know what it is you're only attacking a picture of the film that you have in your own mind and now there's also obviously the, the possibility that the film is just so, so bad at communicating that even a good faith effort won't even be able to ascertain what you, what the movie's about. And that's possible. And there are movies like that, but for a movie like this, where so many people around the world with no communication between each other can come out and say the, the exact same thing. This movie's about this. I think that there, there are a lot of other people who just aren't even looking. And that is, that's not to say you have to like what the film is, but I think you at least have to try to understand the film before you can go out there and try tell the world that it is bad. I don't know. It's just a rant. (laughs) I mean, that's my issue with the way a lot of people just deal with Shyamalan. Even some of the good reviews for his films are frustrating, where it's like Sixth Sense is reduced to, man, that twist, man, that changed the landscape. It's like, yeah, but it's also a good movie, you know? And and a lot of, like, Unbreakable, it's like, man, that was ahead of its time about comic books and, like, like, yeah. And, and, you know, that's kind of getting more to the point of that film. but, But to just kind of end it there without diving deeper um and then of course it's even more frustrating with the the negative reviews of, of what i consider to be some of his good films and yeah i think a lot of people see him as the twist guy well not think i you know i know a lot of people have reduced him to just like a manufacturer of of twists like he's just got him coming out that's that's all that's all to expect from his next film and 
if the twist is disappointing and the film is disappointing and but oh well all right um but it's also worth noting that the audience score on rotten tomatoes is at 77 percent, and our metacritic is at 6.7 so there's a very just you know big difference between the critical and audience already on this movie I have a feeling you know, a lot of the audience is probably made up of you know hardcore Shyamalan fans who are who are the, who are there you know knowing what to expect and willing to put in that extra effort to understand it and also bias because they like it. <laughs> so as far as the legacy, um, there's not really a lot to be said. You know, it only just now came out of the theater and or not just now came out of the theater, but just now came out to to buy and rent. I think you and I are both hopeful that that this is going to maybe even receive what Unbreakable has, which is just, you know, a resurgence and uh, and new appreciation from people who, you know, missed it initially, like myself. I, I don't think it'll quite make it there simply because, like, Unbreakable is so good that it, it wins over people who hate Shyamalan. I don't think this movie's yeah. going to win over that crowd and that, that much. I, I'm hoping that there are, are going to be people out there who who saw the themes in the film and saw the strengths of, of you know, just his directorial effort here. And... and who have a voice in the cinematic community and can really champion this film, but we'll see. I, I, I yeah, I, I can't help but think the future will be kinder to the film than the present is, just because that's that's how it works with Shyamalan. Like his films just grow in appreciation with age, obviously excluding the terrible ones. But all right, so that was our rather scattershot discussion on Glass. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, I'd ask you to please head over to iTunes and uh, subscribe there and also leave us a rating and review that would be very helpful uh, if you want to like us on facebook we are there as franchise fatigue podcast if you want to follow us on twitter and instagram we are there as at franchised pod and if you want to find our other episodes you can go to franchise podcast.com and where can people follow you james you can follow me on letterboxd i am there as jl hamry it's j-l-h-a-m-r-i uh, and you and i are both admins over at the outer rim a star wars group on facebook and are in full swing i think we're in season three now of the clone wars just a group uh, marathon leading into Rise of Skywalker. So yeah. uh, if you're excited about Star Wars and you're ready to talk about it, definitely join us over there. And I'm also on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green. You can find me on Twitter at Gabe A. Green and I'm on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. So next week, uh, we're going to take a break from our franchises and do an underrated episode. And uh, we're going to be talking about The Greatest Showman. Um, I, I'm going to try not to sing... <laughs> <laughs> but I make no promises. I'll be I'll be the uh, dad from uh, Monty Python. I'll, I'll just I'll just ensure it never happens. <laughs> so yeah, until next week when we return with lots of music and joy. Uh, we will see you later. It isn't a limited edition. It's an origin story.